Hello again, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a new interview with one of the film industry's top directors conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Denise Gamza Ergivan's new film, Mustang, which was a nominee at this year's Academy Awards for Best Foreign Language Film. Though submitted as a French film, Mustang tells the story of five sisters in Turkey whose lives are changed when a neighbor reports an afternoon of innocent beach play with some male classmates as illicit behavior. Now scandalized, the girls' parents turn their home into a virtual prison, subjecting them to endless housework lessons as bridal preparation. After the elder sisters are married off, the younger ones bond together in an attempt to avoid the same fate. Screened recently at the DGA Theater in New York as part of the Special Projects Committee's Global Cinema Series, Ergiven was in attendance and spoke with director John Krokaitis about the challenges she faced while making and promoting Mustang. Listen on for highlights from their conversation. Enjoy. So this movie was premiered at Cannes, right? Yes. And director's Fortnite. Yes. And you won an award there. Then you were chosen by France to represent their country for the Oscars. Now you're nominated for an Oscar for Best Foreign Language Movie, nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Movie, and nominated for an Independent Spirit for Best International Film, correct? And how many features have you made before this? None. <laughs> this is her first film. Now I had the moment when I realized. <laughs> the moment of shark realization happened now. Am I, I, I make people blush. Is that happening right now? Okay, good. Um, so the other question that I have for you is, first off, um, do you have sisters? I do. How many? I have one sister and cousins who are as close as sisters. And are you the youngest? Yes, on two generations. A lot of girls and women on two generations. So did that factor into the youngest sister becoming the hero of the movie? That's really so not creative. <laughs> <laughs> And second, uh, what did you do as a teenager that got you into so much trouble? Uh, actually, I was quite the opposite. I just lived those scenes, and uh, we triggered the little scandal um, by playing on the shoulders of the boys. And we just, when we were accused... Oh, wait, that story in the beginning. Mm -hmm. The opening, that's real? That's real. The one big difference is when we were accused of having done something disgusting, we just were mortified, didn't do anything about it, didn't speak, avoided eye contact and the girls break down the chairs of the kitchen and say, these chairs touch our assholes. Isn't that disgusting? So I dreamt I would have said that. I didn't. But I, I fled. It was a good line. I fled out of the window many times. So, yeah. You I did? did? I did plenty of times. Yeah. Where were you going? Actually, I was just going to smoke cigarettes and look at the stars. But, uh... 
Um, my parents are in the audience, and they know a story when I was an exchange student in France. I stayed on an island called the Ile de Ré, and I once stuffed the bed with pillows and escaped out the window to go to uh, a teen center and dance. Um, it's hard to do that here in New York. <laughs> but let me ask you some serious questions. You grew up in Turkey and France. Uh, how old were you when you left Turkey? I was born in Ankara, left as early as when I was six months, but my family was Turkish. We went to live in Turkey when I was nine years old uh, for a few years, and then back to France, and my parents were in, in Turkey, so I went back and forth all the time. So do you feel like going back and forth between the two countries that gave you uh, kind of an out, did you feel like an outsider in Turkey, or did it give you an outsider's perspective, or... Did you feel that way in France, or did you feel that way in both countries? Well, it's true that f for each country, at some point, it was actually I was Turkish in France and French in, in Turkey, but I, f in people's eyes. But for me, it was uh, I never felt uh, neither, not one of them. I, I felt very French and very Turkish, and I still do. And yes, it's because of uh, going back and forth. I've been zooming in and out of uh, the experience of uh, being a woman in Turkey, and I think that. That's what gave me some perspective on the subject matter because it was striking to me that the experience wasn't the same and uh, it wasn't just like something part of the background, you know, that was too familiar for me to to see. It was really very different. And I, I remember each time I arrived to Turkey, I felt like almost, you know, some kind of uh, physical constraint. Uh, so it was palpable. What I, I found shocking is that in reading your bio that you talked about that, is it 1931 in Turkey women were given the right to vote? Uh, yeah, I think even earlier, like uh, local elections, I think it was 25 or something like that. So just after the creation of the republic, yeah. So have things, when did things start to turn and become more constrictive for? There's always been, like Turkey had, uh, was a secular democracy very early on. Women w had great rights, and um, and still today, there's like people who have very modern e live, uh, existences. But it's always been like you had people who were very uh, modern and people who went by very conservative rules. And now the thing is, the conservatives are uh, getting stronger and more prevalent. And and before like. Uh, 2003, like when the AKP came to power, it was easy to live along, uh, and now it's like very polarized and like, yeah, we it's difficult to live together now, and people are, yeah, very antagonized. Now, what, first off, I love this movie, and I really did. <laughs> and what I, what I think I particularly loved about it is even just while starting it, it felt like something fresh and original and yet rooted in real emotion um, and something that I'd never seen before. Because I felt like it started like a neo-realist, kind of like a Darden Brothers movie, and then slowly became in, entered a world of kind of like fairy tale, magical realism. And it started reminding me of, you know, elements of Bunuel and the Czech New Wave, kind of sly social satire. Um, or a foreign film Oscar nominee that I loved from a few years ago called Dogtooth. And then though, as the movie progresses, it became a much more thrilling and dark prison escape and break movie. 
in which I was entirely emotionally invested. And just rarely do you see, I feel like, somebody whose voice is so different from everyone else who's out there, but is so authentic, and you know it belongs to one person. And I'm just curious, I know you made a short film that deal, dealt with similar themes. What were your influences in terms of, like, who were the filmmakers you loved in film school? Who were the filmmakers that you really looked up to? Who's, whose film posters are on your wall? Like, the films um, that I were very, very constitutive. There was uh, Fury from Fitzlang. I'm completely crazy about Mulholland Drive uh, from David Lynch. Completely crazy, I think about it all the time. My, my ring is blue because of that movie. And uh, um, the Monica from Bergman. Uh, Germany Year Zero is very constitutive as well. Um, I still also think about Wild at Heart a lot. And what else? I read that you showed Wild at Heart to one of your actresses. Why did you pick Wild at Heart? Because uh, Lula has a hell of an attitude. And uh, I, we were working on the body language of, uh, of Sonai. So she saw a lot of Marilyn Monroe and a lot of uh, she saw Lolita, Wild at Heart, and other, um, other things. But, uh, and... Um, yeah, I'm very uh, influenced by the Italian neorealist, um, the French New Wave. Um, I think, oh yeah, I'm forgetting one movie, Le Départ from Skolimowski is um, my favorite movie of all time. Le Départ? Le Départ. Yeah, by it's a who? movie. Skolimowski, uh, he's a, a Polish from the generation of Polanski and Kieslowski. He wrote the first movie of uh, Polanski. And he, he, this okay, now like, I'm blushing. Yeah, it's a furious movie. It's like super young and fast and um, full of life. And I always was very moved by it. And now that Mustang exists, the correlation is, is for me, it's a close cousin of Mustang in terms of, uh, yeah, you know, young people full of life. And so in 10 years, when I'm programming my dream film festival, I should program the two films together? Yeah, definitely. Now, I think everyone in this room knows, most people here are DGA members, uh, assistant directors, directors, how difficult it can be to mount a film. Um, this wasn't the film that you started working on right after film school, no? No, I started off working on a project about the Los Angeles riots of 92, and for me it made complete sense and it resonated with something I wanted to say. Um, so I spent years in Los Angeles and South Central documenting um, everything for the script and of course that project, uh, you know, Turkish French, a girl who didn't live that story, I couldn't convince anyone and plus it was something expensive. So for five years I fought for that film and, and it didn't work out. So Mustang started off as an evil master plan to do that other movie afterwards. And and then I, I completely dived in it and I loved it so much that, uh, yeah, it was the main drive. So after five years of struggling to make another movie, which didn't happen, I think a story that a lot of people in this room can understand. This was an idea that was in the back of your head or how did it, you started talking with a friend, right? I had a hard time unhooking uh, from Kings, and it was very, I was obsessed with that, and it was really nothing else 
could happen unless kings existed. I was that was a strange state of mind I was in, and uh, at some point I. Uh, discussions were engaged with financiers, so King's was going somewhere. And during that period, I wrote a treatment with all the major scenes of uh, Mustang. Um, and then, when when King's went completely like uh, against the wall, uh, my life plan was to go to Australia and sell ice cream. And uh, <laughs> and Alice Winocourt. Uh, who was a friend um, and who had similar problematics. She was a screenwriter, a director. She's the one who told me, come on, you know, no, I, come on, not ice cream. And, uh, and so she, she's the one who, yeah, who told me, like, take that thing out of the drawer you told me about and start working on it. And, yeah. and how did you two collaborate together? What's, what is your screenwriter's name again? Alice Winocourt. She's done uh, Augustine and uh, Maryland. Um, she uh, she was a bit like the boxing coach, and uh, because I, uh, she told me things like, if you don't have a script by the end of the summer, you're gonna die. <laughs> and and it was. Can true. you give her my number? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I believed in her, so I was uh, beating my keyboard, uh, and I was working 12, 20 hours a day in a trance, literally, and um, and. I was in such a raw energy that sometimes she would say, okay, you have stones there, uh-uh, maybe it's better there, and you know, it was a bit like that. And it went very fast between us. Uh, she read once a week, and we bounced back, and we t discussed, and within a, a discussion, we had like five scenes, and I went back to work, and yeah. And then I had the script by the end of the summer. And then how long from the point when you finished the script till when you went into production? Well, I was hoping to go into production uh, with the same momentum, which didn't happen because the financing uh, process was very long and you have to proceed in a chronological order in Europe. Like, uh, you have to start with like a public funding and then like the, the first, uh, first financial institutions to say yes is a very strong signal. But then, yeah, there's an, almost an order uh, to process. And so the commissions always take a long time and everything. So. We weren't anywhere close to having the budget. Did you go to Turkey first or France no, first? France, or France, France okay. is a, the, the, it's a French movie um, in terms of production. And then um, I was happy that we didn't have enough money because in 2013 there was like this huge uprising in Turkey. So we were busy doing something that looked like a revolution. And we were ready to shoot by the summer 2014. I had the cast locations, a lot of preparation. And the initial producer dropped the movie three weeks before the shooting. So we were like left wait, for wait, dead. Wait, wait, yeah. wait. Mm -hmm. So you would, okay, one movie, a lot of us know the story. You spent several years struggling, it fell apart. You had a backup movie. Your co writer whipped you, got the script into shape. It took a couple years to get the financing. You're three weeks away from production, and the financier left? Not the, fi not the financier, the producer, the producer left. The thing is, we had like on paper a lot of things, uh, a lot of p financial partners, uh, and it looked like a lot of money, and it was not en enough money for Mustang. Like we had around eight hundred thousand, and Mustang eventually cost one million three hundred. And uh, what happened was that she she had employed like a first AD, a director of production, very late in the process. So all of a sudden there was like figures coming on her table, which said like. 
it's, it's shootable in 11 weeks. Uh, it's it's going to cost this much. So it didn't seem feasible. So she said bye-bye. And yeah, and it was quite dramatic. And I had learned like a week. Can we get her on the phone right now? <laughs> no, it's a good thing that eventually, now that we're seated here today, it's a good thing she did that. Because we would have exploded uh, on flight if she had decided to do it and what happened how did you just i mean psychologically and literally how did you keep the <clears throat> film together at that well, point well at that point the thing is um, i was so much in the battle to save the film like when she was literally dumping the movie i was making phone calls across the table from her uh, to producers in paris and i eventually called the first producer to whom i had sent the scripts and he eventually accepted to do it. But it was not only like, there was a few producers who were like, okay to do it, but you had to clear the rights very quickly. There was a lot of work to do, and you had to refinance the gap, which was like one thir more than a third of the film. So it was a huge... Did you have the cast already when I your producer left? You so had everything. Ripe, so ripe. Um, no, there was this thing, he, the new producer sent this director of pr production to... Uh, uh, to Turkey, and I was showing him, he, he was supposed to come and assess if the film was feasible or not. So as t I was taking him on every single location, and I was explaining him how we were going to shoot. We're going to put the camera here, it's going to look like this, we're going to do this and that. And then he was calling the producer and saying, no, don't do the film. But the producer still did it. And one day we arrived to the orchard uh, at the, that you see in the beginning of the film, and it was just... The, tr the apples were there, you know, and I had been there for like months and months and months. So for me, it was the film was so ripe and ready to be born, and like the world was pregnant with it as much as I was pregnant with a baby. And, you know, the film was just there, and it was like this close of non-existent. Wait, they don't know this part yet. Yeah, no, I told she them. was pregnant. Yeah, no. <laughs> so you. No, but I, that was. So the producer left three weeks before. You found yeah. another producer, mm -hmm. and how many months pregnant were you when you made I this know, movie? Uh, I was, st the shooting started, I was 13 weeks and ended my mid-pregnancy, 20 weeks, yeah. Amazing. So, do, you, do you feel at all that being pregnant and having kind of just the more important things of life facing you and you're dealing with helped you at all? Or changed the way that you approached making the movie at a certain point? Well, the thing is, I had, um, for all the years I was trying to get Kings on its feet, um, I had like left everything about life on the side and repressed like my desires to do every anything else, uh, thinking I'm not standing on my feet yet, and like the life which uh, the movies needed at that time. Like I didn't have much money, I traveled a lot, I was uh, sleeping in couches in friends' places all the time, and things like that. So it was quite fragile, and it wasn't like a life where you can have uh, children or anything else. So I was suppressing the whole thing. And of course, like as soon as uh, the movie started vaguely to crystallize, life just whistled, and the baby jumped in. And so, and so I had to, uh, uh, once I was pregnant and the movie was going havoc, I had to hold tight because I couldn't have a messy life anymore. So I think I, I really battled even stronger because I was pregnant. And plus, I couldn't stress, so there was so much cold blood. Like, you can't even, you know, allow yourself a drop of stress. Um, so I'm very grateful for the baby. And then it's great because you can ask a lot from other people.
Okay, that this is a good segue. In order to, I think, get a vision as kind of unique and special as this, you need to have a really great team. And I feel that you can feel when good collaboration is present on the screen. And I feel your cinematographer, you worked, shot your short as well. Is that correct? Uh, what's yes. his, his name? His name is David Chizalet. You guys, you're really, keep having him shoot your stuff. You guys obviously have a very strong relationship because in watching it, I'm guessing you didn't have much time to shoot this movie? No, it was going fast, but yeah. About how much time would you say? Well, it was seven weeks, 12 hours a day, six days a week. So it's, it's still a lot of time, but it's, it was going fast. I feel like also, can you just talk about, again, we have an audience of mostly directors, ADs, UPMs, etc. It doesn't seem like you shot standard coverage was your shooting style. Mm. I would look in scenes you definitely had moved the camera and covered from Zephyr Eagles, but it felt almost like you took a much more intuitive approach to filming. I wouldn't say documentary by any means, but something a little bit more organic. Did, do you shot, did you shot lists together? Like what, how did you approach every day together? Well, the thing is, some shots in, in the film are completely drawn like a picture. Um, for instance, the very obvious ones, the ones where the village uh, shuts down, the electricity, or um, like everything where you have to see something as if somebody drew it, um, the bus station at the end, things like that. And then there was the, the script was uh, very precise on what you see and what you hear. So it was almost like a list of uh, images. And then we did this house, which was like two houses uh, built again, um, behind one another. We broke down a lot of walls and windows, so you had uh, openings and like always different um, uh, scenes. You had the foreground, the middle ground, the background, and then the window. You could see the. Uh, so there was a lot of circulations to compose our our shots. So once we had our dollhouse, uh, the list of things we had to see, uh, we we went in the sets and just like the DOP sometimes would would tell me I can. Uh, tie uh, this, this this image in one shot. And that was the way we worked. And when he couldn't anymore, we just like changed angle and continued from another place. And, uh, you know, almost everyone talks about the casting and casting five teenage girls. Um, let's talk about that for a second, but I also want to bring up, I thought you did an excellent job casting the adults in this movie because I feel like in another version of this movie, they would have felt a little bit more simplistic, or it could have been more of a morality tale in which there was good and bad and dark and light. But the grandmother, for example, um, I just thought overall that your collaboration with your casting director was, you, you guys seemed very much on the same page. But I read, so when you hear that you saw hundreds of young girls, does that mean you were in a room? Does that mean videos were sent to you? Did they go over several countries? Like, how do you do a search yeah. like that? There was, um, well, two of the girls. One I had seen, Elite, the only one who had acted before, uh, was an actress who had played in the High Adams movie. Uh, another one I hunted down at the airport. Like, she passed a few times, and, and then I auditioned her. And then there was, like, a, a lot Did of... Did she think you were crazy? No. No, no. No? No. No, but when I ran and well, I was her family there. Yeah, her family was there, and they and weren't worried that a strange woman was coming up to their no. daughter saying, "I want no, to put you in my, a movie." My my husband, when he saw me talking with them for like so long, he thought I I ran into family, and 
and they weren't family. <laughs> but I was like telling them uh, the whole story. Or pr I don't know, like we were talking for a long, long time. You At went up airport. to a stranger in an airport and then pitched her your entire movie and Not then cast the her. Not the entire movie, but like I told them a lot of things. Uh, and, and then we met. And, uh, but uh, of course things like that happen, you do think. <laughs> I don't, I never, that stuff like that hasn't happened to me, anyone? We're getting to questions soon, by the way. Um, so, no, the, our casting director was really great. I had uh, prepared her a whole audition process and of the things I wanted to see uh, in in the girls and the candidates. And once I had like, I never said this is a. Will you tell us? I was just wondering that you have five sisters to yeah. cast. Mm. How do you make sure each one is a different color and feels different from the other? Well, there was first uh, we we. Just make them make them talk, tell anecdotes. Or there was a sad anecdote, a funny anecdote, uh, uh, things about themselves. And then uh, there was like very simple exercises to do. Like we hid keys in the in the room, and they had to look for them. And uh, you that, hid keys yeah, in a room. Yeah, that sounds so silly, but you don't have no idea how how many people don't know how to do that. Like okay, so wait, you literally took a key, you hid it in the room, yeah, you brought an actor room. in, mm -hmm. and said. Hide and go seek, and then you shut the door and film them. No, the camera's in, inside the room with them, and they just look for a key. But that's like. Honestly, and what do you learn about someone when they well, play for hide and seek? People who never act before, you you see if they can have like absolute privacy uh, with the camera, if uh, the, you know if they feel disturbed by it or not, if they can engage into simple actions moment by moment. You see that it's like as important as listening. Um, and they do things for real, like if they're not like playing with an invisible teapot. A lot of people played around with invisible stuff. And, <laughs> well, um, <laughs> and then... The invisible teapot? <laughs> no, when people... Like the like, Strasbourg acting yeah. exercise? Yeah, some, some Are you an actor? That. I acted a little bit, yeah. But then uh, the other thing was um, uh, the two little ones, they uh, started looking for the key as if the room was on fire. And, no, but that gave you a level of, you know, of, uh, of intensity, which I thought I could use for the film. That was not like what I was looking for in that specific exercise, but that was there. And then there was like this long scene where I had adapted um, a moment from Foxfire of Joyce Carol Watts. And uh, the beginning of the oh, scene sure. is, is very was very dialogued, and the end of the scene was very open. It's the dactylo scene, you know. Uh, so the girls live a very unjust situation, and uh, and they have this abusive guy in front of them. So and they had um, something to do, like they had to get out of that room with the, the object, whatever they was the strategy. So they had to invent stuff, and you you saw the temper, you saw everything. Like Elida, the uh, one who plays Sonai, started to flirt. She was like, okay. And, <laughs> and then, again, nine girls out of ten begged for the object. And one, like, then one girl out of ten invented stuff and changed strategy and went color to color. And, and Ganesh, the, the, the Lali, was super smart. She was like so... Uh, she was playing a chess game. And, and then she was so arrogant. She was like, you can't prove that. And... Yeah, and she had such an attitude, so. I'm just waiting for you to meet Kate Blanchett and be like, there's a key hidden in this room. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, there's, is it time to ask questions? 
Yeah, we got, we got, okay. So we're gonna open this up to questions. Let me just say before we go, again, your work with your editor, this movie's so tight, and the music. It's Nick, it's a musician who works with Nick Cave, is that correct? It's Ellis, yeah. And you, again, you were a fan of his music and you, he said he wasn't going to do the movie and you wouldn't leave until you persuaded him to do it, is that correct? Yes, but people say no all the time. Apparently, until you convince them not to. Even now, we're discussing a new project. They said no. <laughs> so it's gonna happen. Well, your persistence paid off, and I think paid off beautifully. And let's get some questions from the audience. Well, Hold on, they want me to just repeat the, or you can repeat the question for the camera. Um, what did she do to foster the intimacy and the relationship between the girls off camera and on? Is that correct? Okay. We started each time we made them encounter, and, and specifically the time when the five of them were brought together, we engaged them into uh, exercises where they, when the, where they had to do eye contact, physical contact, exchange secrets, and when like two persons look into each other's eye like this and say very very private things and then sh shut up, it's very moving. So and then they had empathy towards one another and they were moved by one another and. Uh, and then it was very playful. And very early on, they started uh, protecting each other very strongly. They're very, um, you know, between five girls, it could be awful. It could be very competitive. and um, But they were never like that. There was never, even like uh, the first time they acted a scene together, it was beautiful because it was a scene very close to the one where the grandmother beats the girls one after the other. Uh, something is happening which was unfair and they didn't know what they were accused of. And they were extremely solidary of one another, protecting each other. And then uh, at some point, Lely in the beginning was so frightened by the scene because it was they had a, quite a strong antagonist. So she was always in the back and, and completely freaked out and looking around what was happening. And at some point, she, uh, she like her top blew and so she just, dived into the scene, and the other ones let her the space to do that. And so they got the dynamic of the of the group and what was on the script. And she was like this, and her antagonist was two heads bigger than her, and she was uh, shouting at him as if she was a little hardened criminal, you know, like <laughs> And so we had our lele that day, it was very obvious. Right there. Uh, the question is, has she shown the film in Turkey and what the reaction was? Well, two sets of uh, reactions. Um, first of all, the, the country is extremely polarized uh, now, and uh, the reactions are as polarized. And the nature of the debate is very close to the conflict inside the film. So uh, there's people who, who say things like, uh, it makes me sick to my stomach to see this, these girls so little dressed in front of the camera. And then people who answer on social media, like if you looked at them as if they were kids, maybe you wouldn't say things like that. And then there's like the second set of uh, uh, criticism, which is more like uh, from the territories where you have little films that come out. And Turkey is a, f is a country where you had like, a precedent like Midnight Express, which really damaged the image of the country. And for like decades, when you said I I'm Turkish, somebody would say, oh, I saw Midnight Express. And that felt like a truckload of birds in your head. And uh, so, so Turks are extremely susceptible about the way the country is represented. And even yesterday, at a Q &A, after a Q&A, a Turk came to see me and told me, you know, when they arrive in Istanbul, you, you show all those images of uh, those roads and you s a municipal bus, which is ugly, and I'm like, 
so they would rather have me show monuments and and do a little clip for the Ministry of Culture or or a film that would look like Roman vacation. Like I think if we, if if we did a movie like that, Turks would be like so happy once and for all, and then we could get over it. But um, but I understand it. I was very upset about Minet Express as well. Um, yeah, so there's like this thing about representation as well. But for me, I, and or for example, the uncle, there was people articulate the national feeling in Turkey as if it was a fam familial. Uh, do you say that a family feeling? So uh, they feel as if I was disloyal and like talking about family secrets um, outside the family because there's like uh, sexual abuse and things like that. But then I'm yeah, my reaction is to say you know it's not Turkish, it's human, so it's not like yeah. Right there? So the question is how she, did she make a conscious decision how to approach sexuality and desire and how to portray it in the film? Is that correct? Okay. Um, well, there was something about, uh, like of course there, there's sexuality in life and, and people carry eroticism and everything, but it's a very uh, small portion of our lives if you look at it. Uh, like most of the time you brush your teeth, boil an egg, do so many other things. And uh, so um, I had the impression, like the, the way women were looked at was saying they're permanently sexual, like that there's this filter of sexualization in Turkey, which is striking to me. And so I wanted to say, no, you know, like, uh, so the camera was filming the girls with a very conscious uh, uh, look like that. And for me, like the way you, you hold your camera, where, what you focus on, what's the heart of your frame, the length of your frame, tells a lot about the way you look at your characters. And um, so it's very uh, easy to show desire through the, uh, a POV shot, to show repulsion, to show like specific moods. And, and here it had to be neutral as much as possible. Yeah. Do they really check the sheets? Do actually, they do. A doctor from Ankara told me that, a gynecologist uh, who works at the public hospital in Ankara, which is the capital of the country, so it's not like a remote place. Um, but the cities are like clusters of the entire population of Turkey, so you have people who have very free lives and people who have this life too. And he told me he saw that 40, 50 times a year at a wedding season, and immediately he told me like the, the it's always a girl escorted by the family of the groom and there was so crazy because he told me they were in their suits of uh, the wedding. You know, they've been dancing and, and, and their shirts are completely messed up. The, the makeup is like that. The hair is like this. And, uh, and they come with a bride sometimes in her wedding dress who hasn't bled. So the, the situation was so crazy. And I pictured it under neon lights at 3 o'clock in the morning, if not like 4 or 5 o'clock. And, and so, yeah, it was extremely strong in terms of cinema. At some point, I wanted to do... Uh, either a documentary or a play about this because you have a unit of time and space. And The way you staged that scene, I thought with them banging on the door was very mm. effective. Um, we need to wrap things up. Okay, so let's get two more questions. Go ahead. No, that one, for, there's many reasons to that. Like, it's a bit like the wedding everybody wants to do quickly and, you know, at dark uh, after 
So it's it's a bit like a small expedient wedding. And then it's not so like a girl when she's married in, in traditional families like that, she would be, it's possible that she goes in a distant place to a distant family and she's like part of her husband's family. So it's not like, um, it's a choice, but they could have been there, but no. And let's get one more. You've been waiting a very long time. So the question is about her work with the composer and how the score in this film was so much a character and how present was she in the process? It was uh, quickly about our collaboration. First of all, there was something about his uh, main instruments, like the viola, the violin, which were so uh, much the cousins of our film because the, the, that huge wooden house looks like a giant violin and the the flute uh, echoes like uh, the elements, the wind. And it's there were so many things you couldn't put on those images. And um, so there was an organic... Um, um, tie between uh, Warren's music and and the film. And then um, uh, it's true that his lead instrument is always extremely narrative, and he always thought about it as a voice, and me too. So you really have the impression there's like a musical phrase um, which corresponded to the girls as well. So that was there too. And I loved uh, the beginning when you have like these flutes and you, you have this ding ding, uh, which is a bit um, announcing you, some, you know, that, okay, we're happy at the beach, but it's going to end in an awful way very soon. And uh, what else? Um, and then he, he had quite a bit of, like he had the time he needed. But the thing is, by while we were working together, I remember we were in the editing room and he was sending us uh, sounds and he was going so fast that we we didn't even have the time to listen to what he was sending us that he had like send a batch and so he was extremely uh, fast and there was a few things uh, we worked over and over again like the scene where the girls parade in their shapeless colored dresses in the center of the city uh, that was like yeah, very strong uh, moment, uh, and the composition was more c very complex at that time. So uh, um, that was yeah, um, quite a lot of uh, coming and going. Uh, so, what are you doing the next month? N no, the next month. What are you up to? So we're leaving on Sunday night to Paris, and then we have a, a crazy psychedelic weekend on the 26, 27, 28. <laughs> I just want to say, first off, congratulations on making a beautiful film. And... <laughs> I think I'm speaking for a lot of people in this room when you realize these moments don't happen that often. And I hope they continue to happen for you. And I hope that you find some enjoyment in the next month or two. And we'll ultimately get to a day when this doesn't matter, but there are directors nominated for Best Director. There are directors nominated for Documentary, for Foreign Film, for the Short Films, for Short Animation, and you are looking at one of the only two women directors nominated this year. And It's been a long journey. You made a beautiful film, and I wish you the best with this. Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. With the Oscars now in the rearview mirror, 
Hollywood's award season has come to a close. You can still watch video of all our award season Q&As on our website, our YouTube channel, or check out any of our preview podcast episodes from this season. And stay subscribed to The Director's Cut for more Q&As and highlights from other DGA events and selections from our archive. Also on our website, you can explore our visual history program with long-form oral history interviews that delve deep into the careers of veteran DGA members. Check out the program at dga.org slash craft slash visual history. If you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please subscribe to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. And leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. We hope you hear from us soon. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.